0: Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you should not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her and ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden.
1: So in this familiar account, the crafty serpent appears suddenly in the narrative. And the harmony in the Garden of Eden is broken. Now God has been very gracious to the man and woman. Allowing them to eat from anything in the garden. Anything at all. Dozens of choices save one. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That alone is out of bounds. Everything else. Enjoy, eat, drink, be merry. Ooh, but there's a fascination with that one forbidden fruit. It remembers a child being told, by mom and dad. You can do all these things, but I don't want you doing this. And what had a certain fascination? (sighs) Dozens of options. Only one restriction. God also gives a reason. You will introduce death, your own death, by partaking of the forbidden fruit. Now the tempter both slanders God suggesting our Creator is overly restrictive and misrepresents God's Word by provocatively asking, well did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And then adds, you will not die if you eat of the forbidden fruit for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, that argument was persuasive. And so the human beings rebelled against their creator. Both ate of the forbidden fruit. Their eyes were opened. And realizing for the first time their nakedness, they experienced shame and made clothing to cover up. And then, and sorry, we don't have time to read this entire narrative. It gets very long. But later in the chapter, then God confronts them with their disobedience and their three principal consequences. And they go right in order with the sermons you've heard the last three weeks. They initially forfeit their intimate and loving relationship with God. They're evicted from the garden and enter the dominion of death. Second, there's ongoing alienation between the human beings, between the man and the woman. He blames the woman for his disobedience. She blames the serpent. Neither take responsibility. As a consequence of their sin, God announces, Eve, your desire shall be for your husband. And yet... He shall rule over you. And third, whereas creation itself had been a cooperative and fruitful partner with the humans bringing forth an abundance of food, now the ground itself is cursed because of this human rebellion and the environment becomes almost an enemy requiring toil and sweat and hard labor to produce the food they need. So although the image of God in humans has not been destroyed, it has certainly been seriously damaged, defaced if you will. Now according to scripture that is our current human condition apart from the grace of God in Christ. Now we're doing this big tour today and uh, the Apostle Paul is going to address the events that Patrice just read about in his most famous letter, uh, really um, his manifesto, his his letter to the church at Rome, he's going to address this universal and deadly spiritual virus the Bible calls sin and how Jesus deals with it. So Patrice is coming back to read Romans chapter 5 beginning with verse 1, then she's going to jump to verse 12 and read through verse 21, again from the New Revised Standard Version.
0: Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned, sin was indeed in the world before the law. But sin is not reckoned when there is no law. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one man's trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. If because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of the righteous exercise dominion and life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all for just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous but law came in with the result that the trespass multiplied but where sin increased grace abounded all the more so that just as sin exercised dominion and death so grace might also exercise dominion through justification, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So be it. Amen.
1: Earlier in the same document, Paul's letter to the church at Rome. He played the part of district attorney or prosecuting attorney trying to indict, really, and convict both Jews and Gentiles. And for Jews, everyone who's not Jewish is a Gentile. So it's all of humankind is indicted as guilty of sin. In verse 12, Paul says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, for the first time, Paul uses the definite article. Rather than sin, hamartia, he says just as, hey, hamartia, the sin came into the world through one man. Why does he do that? And he uses that, that construction 31 more times in this manifesto. Why does he do that? Herman Wachent, professor of New Testament emeritus at San Francisco Seminary, writes, I think he's correct, that By using the definite article on occasion, Paul is telling us that sin does not only consist of certain acts and attitudes that are sinful, but rather sin is also a condition which has infected all humankind. Now, notice that unlike Augustine and many other Christian theologians, and Jewish theologians for that matter, Paul does not explain how the condition of sin is spread. He says simply that the condition of sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin and spread to all, because all have sinned. He doesn't say how exactly the transmission happened, but he says in time this infection of sin will manifest as manifested itself in the lives of every human being, should they live long enough, past young infancy. So we all inherit the condition of sin, Paul is saying, and in time that infection manifests itself in particular acts of sin, particular behaviors and attitudes, as we freely choose to participate in it. Sin's universality and corporate nature are illustrated by a humorous story by Rabbi Simeon Ben-Yokai. Here's the story. A number of men were sitting in a boat when one of them took out an auger and began boring a hole in the boat. His companion said to him, what are you doing? He said, what business is it of yours? Am I not boring under myself? They answered, wait a minute, it is our business because the water will come in and swamp the boat with us in it. Let's take the the story one step further. The Apostle Paul is telling this that because of the condition of sin which has infected all of us we all have in effect drilled holes in the boat. And to mix metaphors, friends, we are all in the same boat as far as sin is concerned. And the crisis of sin is so enormous, it's so pervasive, it's so powerful, it is not something... That any of us alone or all of us together can solve. We need a first responder. We need a rescue worker. The New Testament word for that is Savior. Well, how does Jesus deal with our sin? Paul says in this passage, I know it is complicated. Paul is a rabbinic theologian in all his grandeur and what Patrice just read. But it's very dense and confusing. Paul is saying Jesus' obedience to the will of God, including his, willing to, his willingness to offer his life and sacrifice for our sin and that of all humankind, compensates for Adam's disobedience. It more than compensates, according to Paul. And while Adam and Eve grasp for divine transcendence, to be like God, knowing good and evil. Don't you want to be like God? Yes. What do we read in Philippians chapter 2 in our affirmation of faith? That God in Christ instead empties Himself. The preexistent Son or Word of God who already enjoyed equality with God, does not grasp or cling to that exalted status, but empties himself of his divine prerogatives by embracing our human condition and by humbling himself even to the point of death on a cross in order to free us from our bondage to the infection, the condition of sin. So while Adam and Eve sought self-rule, they want to be independent from their Creator, Jesus willingly submits to the will of God. He acknowledges his ongoing dependence upon God. Now Paul argues that because of the first Adam's trespass, death was introduced and exercised dominion from that time forward. And by contrast, because of the obedience of Jesus the second Adam, including a sacrificial death, grace now exercises dominion, leading to eternal life for those who trust in Christ. Paul expresses the very heart of the gospel in verse 20. I just want to cheer whenever I hear these words. That for those who trust in Christ, where sin increased grace abounded all the more. Paul pictures grace as a divine tsunami, an enormous tidal wave which overwhelms the sin of all humankind. Paul assures us that God's grace in Christ is more powerful, more dynamic than all our sin. Is that really true? Some years back, Ian MacDonald appeared before Hamilton Presbytery in Scotland to be examined for ordination to become a minister of the word and sacrament. And you guys, you need to know this. The, the final trial of ordination, either in the Church of Scotland, our home church, or here in the United States, is um, trial by the presbytery, which means you read a statement of faith, and then the presbytery can ask you anything, anything at all about your life, they can be as intrusive as they want to be. And they can act, ask you anything about the statement of faith. You have just composed of your own learning and faith and read in front of them. So you're like reading this short statement and then you know you're going to be attacked or challenged. You know, explain this and, and that and, and tell us about your life and what's your practice of prayer and blah, blah, blah. You know, they can ask anything they want. Certainly an anxiety-producing experience for all of us who have ever been through it. So Ian MacDonald was to prepare before Hamilton Presbytery. Okay, big deal. Others have done it before him. Friends, Ian had been convicted and spent time in prison for embezzling thousands of pounds for the bank he once worked for. Whoa. On that same evening, I don't know whether in Scotland all the presbyteries meet on the same night, But in nearby Glasgow Presbytery, James Nelson appeared to be examined for ordination to become a minister of word and sacrament. He was also a convicted felon. He'd been convicted of murdering his own mother. I'm not making this up. The Scottish press had a field day, weeks in advance, speculating Are these presbyteries going to take the step of approving these two convicted felons, an embezzler, a mother murderer, and give them access to being a minister of word and sacrament? Where sin increased, does grace actually abound all the more? To me, these are great great test cases. Well, the day came... I'm sure they both were thoroughly examined. Both were approved by their respective presbyteries. Well, what happened? What's the rest of the story? Ian MacDonald tragically had a heart condition. His ministry, his pastorate, was fairly short in the congregation to which he was called. James Nelson, though, had a long and very productive ministry. And while some fought, wondered, wondered, whether it would be possible for the church who called him as pastor not to split over that controversy. In fact, that church did not split. He had a very productive ministry there for many years. Friends, I think these two repentant and faith-filled persons are living examples of Paul's claim that where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more. As the Holy Spirit brings us to repentance and faith, God's grace in Christ is able to forgive and free us from all, and I mean all, our sin. Now in the passage we use in our call to worship, from Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, he spoke about trusting in Christ and being clothed with the new self which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. As God created human beings in his image, an image now defaced by our sin, Paul is saying God is now working through the Holy Spirit to renew us in accordance with God's image. Now, once in a while, Greek grammar is important. And the word here, being renewed, is a present passive participle passive means that the individual is not the actor in this case the Holy Spirit God in Christ is the actor we are the ones upon whom God is acting and this is uh, being imperfect it means this is an ongoing renewal it's not over and done with we haven't arrived Thank you, God, you've made me perfectly Christ-like. Oh, I'm so, your people are so lucky to be near me. Oh, so fortunate. No. According to this language, none of us has arrived. And guess what? As Calvinists, we believe, we take these words very seriously from Paul. None of us will ever arrive this side of eternity. But all the time, once we come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit is working on us to renew the divine image within. Now, what does this mean? I'm just going to run through the sermons preached by Emily and Dale and myself before. It means, first of all, because of Jesus' saving work, we've been reconciled to God. We have renewed opportunity for intimate and loving relationship with our Creator. We've been reconciled to other people, secondly. Did you notice in our call to worship from Colossians After speaking about being renewed in the image of God, Paul comments, this is really important, this is a radical statement, radical statement. You know how thoroughly ethnocentrism and racism permeate the globe today and permeate our society right here? We all know this. This is not new. Listen to these words. In that renewal, there is no longer Jew and Greek circumcised and uncircumcised barbarian, Scythian, slave and free but God is all and in all. Paul uses eight designations telling us that no racial ethnic difference no religious difference no socio-economic distinction should matter in our personal relationships with each other and they certainly shouldn't matter in the life of this and any congregation. What matters is our relationship With Jesus Christ. Which makes us by definition family members. We're all brothers and sisters. And third, besides reconciling us to God and to other people. On Emily's sermon last week she talked about the environment. And being caring stewards of the environment. Third, because of Christ's saving work are being restored to the image of God. Being, are being restored that is. We're increasingly able... To care for creation and use it respectfully and appropriately as God's stewards. Now friends, Paul began the fifth chapter of Romans with this statement. It's a wonderful thesis statement. Therefore, since we are justified by faith. What does that mean? Justified is a legal term meaning pronounced, being pronounced not guilty by God the judge. Since we have been pronounced not guilty... By God our creator and our judge. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is. This all wraps up into this question. Where are you in terms of a relationship with God in Christ? Have you come to trust that as our sin bearer and redeemer. The crucified and risen one. Is able to reconcile us to God other people and the created order. Renewing and restoring the divine image within us. Friends, what all of these scriptures say is that God is for us. God has said yes to each one of us in the person of Christ. But perhaps you've never said a definite yes in response to the grace of Christ. Though the Spirit's been nudging you in that direction, I encourage you today to respond to God's yes to you by saying yes in return. Embracing Christ by faith. So may it be. Amen.
2: song